James 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. 24 years ago, our youngest son, Blake, was diagnosed with autism. In 1991, it was a rare diagnosis and a terrible shock. The only effective therapies at the time had not been accepted or implemented in the Seattle area. It was a continual struggle and challenge to find effective programs for Blake at home and at school. I felt like I was facing trial after trial and it was testing my faith. I honestly thought I would never experience joy again. A good friend pointed these verses out to me during those dark days. It was a complete eye-opener. We are to consider trials joy, and we are going to be better off, mature and complete. I have thought of these verses often during difficult times, and they have been a beautiful reminder to me that I can have joy in the midst of life's greatest challenges, and that God will use these challenges to develop my faith, further His kingdom, and draw me closer. So God, speak to us this morning. Speak to us in the trials that we may be in, in the trials that we're facing. God, speak to our hearts and assure us that you are with us, you are for us and not against us, and that we can feel your joy as your sons and daughters here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, good morning to all of you here, and good morning if you are watching on the podcast. Uh, we are so glad that you are here with us, and I'm going to move this. I move around a lot, so I'm actually going to move it down and then up. My name is Annie Duncan, and I'm a pastor here on staff for young adults, and I've actually been on staff for 10 years now. Uh, I've worked with junior high and then high school, and now with young adults. I kind of just age up as they go. Um, but I'm really excited to be here this morning with you all, uh, and I think I should probably start this sermon off with a confession. It's actually a two-part confession, and the first part is this. Uh, the passage that we are talking about this morning, James 1, 2 through 4, I haven't always liked this passage. I actually haven't really liked it at all. It's one of those verses in the Bible that I kind of wish wasn't there. Maybe you're with me on this. Maybe there are passages that you skip or skim or ignore altogether, and I am with you in that because this verse was one of those for me. Because, I mean, come on, considering it joy when we face trials, this seemed a little bit too happy-clappy Christian for me. I'm going through a really hard time right now, but I'm so joyful about it. It's just, it didn't match up for me. So that's the first part of my confession, is I haven't really liked this verse. But the second part is this. I get it now. I understand what these words are about. I see the power and the truth and the testimony behind these words. After studying the scripture for the past couple months, I get it. And you might be sitting there thinking, oh, that's cute. She gets it now. What does she know? Well, I believe that the goal of preaching is transformation, that we all leave here a little bit different, a little bit more like God. And in studying and preparing for this sermon, that is what I've experienced. I've been transformed by these words. James 1, 2 through 4, they are truly words we live by. As Christians, I believe that they are words we cling to, 
to experience joy despite our circumstances. And later on, I'm going to share a story with you all that always makes me cry. And if you know me, you know that I cry all the time. I cry when I'm happy, when I'm sad, when I'm tired, when I'm hungry, and especially when I'm talking about God's love and God's faithfulness. It's, it's a miracle that I don't just weep through this whole sermon. So that's my two-part confession. I've done a 180. The title of this sermon is 180 Degrees. I've done a 180. I've changed my mind. James 1, 2 through 4 are words we live by. And the reason I've done this 180, I've had a change of heart, is because of James. James, the one that penned these words so many years ago, also had a life-altering change of perspective. He did a 180 in his life. And it's it makes James's words all the more powerful when we know what this 180 was. I believe that we can't really understand what these verses are about until we know who James was. So we're going to check him out for the next little bit. James is the half-brother to Jesus. Let that one sink in a little bit. James is the half-brother to Jesus. Same mother, different fathers. Jesus is the firstborn. James is the secondborn. They grew up in the same house together. They shared meals together. They played together in the dirt. They slept elbow to elbow next to each other on the same straw mat at night. But one is the son of Joseph, and one is the son of God. And I've been, as I've been trying to visualize this the relationship that James and Jesus must have had, I couldn't help but think of my two nephews. They are two years apart, Cooper is six, and Jack is four. And the other night, they came over to my husband and I's house for dinner, and they were so excited to show Auntie Annie this new game that they'd come up with. One of them stands still, and the other one runs full speed into them, trying to knock them to the ground. <laughs> Jack left with a huge knot on his forehead. Cooper left with his head split open. They, they were okay. They do this all the time. <laughs> But as I watched them play together, I couldn't help but picture James and Jesus, rumbly, tumbly little boys crashing into each other, playing together, growing up together. Like my nephews, James and Jesus must have had a very special relationship. James knew Jesus as a brother before he knew him as the Son of God. And as James and Jesus grew older, like some, like some relationships, there are some insight in Scripture about their evolving relationship, some changes that happened. As Jesus started his ministry and was preaching and teaching and healing, the Gospel of Mark shows us an initial reaction from his family. Jesus' influence had gained him followers. He had disciples and it says, wherever he went, a crowd followed him. And in Mark chapter 3, Jesus is with his disciples, and a crowd has gathered yet again. And Mark says that they, the crowd was so big that they weren't even able to sit down and have a meal. And Mark 3.21 says this, When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. This is a short verse, but its commentary offers a lot of insight. 
Jesus' family's response to his followers, to his popularity, to his ministry, was insanity. And James was among them saying, he's crazy. He's crazy. The Gospel of John also gives us a glimpse into what James must have thought of Jesus. James is among the rest of Jesus' brothers trying to get control of Jesus. And they offer him some ministry advice. And the story concludes by saying even his own brothers didn't believe him. So let's quickly piece together what we know about James. First, we know that James and Jesus grew up together. They had a close relationship. They had shared experiences. Second, we know that as they got older, a rift formed between Jesus and James. And third, we know that before James authored the book of James, he was an unbeliever. James doubted who Jesus was. So how does James 180 degree, how does that come into play? When does this happen? How did he go from unbelieving to believing? Well, in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes of all the accounts that Jesus had after he died and was resurrected. Jesus appeared to large groups of people, and he also appeared to a handful, select individuals, one-on-one. This was not random, but this was strategic. Jesus appeared to those who really, really needed to see him. And among them was Peter. Prior to Jesus' death, Peter had denied Jesus three times. Peter really needed to see Jesus. And then there was Paul, who before Jesus appeared to him, was persecuting and killing Christians. And then there was Mary Magdalene, who was the first to the tomb, wondering where her Lord was, and Jesus appears to her there. So we've got Peter, Paul, and Mary. (laughs) And who else does Jesus appear to? James. In 1 Corinthians 15, 7, it says, Then Jesus appeared to James. And that's all that scripture tells us. And I wish Paul would have embellished a little bit more and told us what went on there. What did they say? What did they do? What did James, how did James react? But that's all that scripture tells us. And it's here that we have James's 180 degree turn in life. This is where the shift happens. For when Jesus appeared to James this time, Here's what James saw. Jesus, his half-brother, the one he grew up with, the one who bore a similar resemblance to him, but the one he had called crazy, the one he had seen die, was now standing before him. Before, Jesus knew James as a brother, and it's here that he sees him as the Son of God. And it's this moment where James changes into the one who writes the words that we live by. It's this moment, it's because of this moment that they even exist. So now let's fast forward to James's book of the Bible. Starting in chapter 1, verse 1, James writes this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So now that we know a little bit about James, 
and we've read this scripture in a little bit more context, here are three trial takeaways, that's what I'm going to call them, that we can, we can know about this passage of scripture. And the first trial takeaway is this. James's trial was unbelief. James's trial was unbelief. When it comes to doubting who Jesus is and trials, James has a lot of credibility. He gets it. He lived it. He was Jesus' half-brother, and yet he doubted who he was. So James, of all people, can confidently and encouragingly write the church saying, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds, because he knew that his trial of unbelief eventually led him face-to-face with Jesus. This is what did it for me. As I was studying this, this passage, this was the aha moment that I had that changed this scripture from one that I kind of ignored to one that I was like, ah, I get it. Because James isn't just simply writing instructions to his readers, but he's writing out of experience. He's writing out of experience. He's lived this. And unbelief wasn't James's only trial. James writes of trials in the plural, and he uses the word when and trials, when we experience trials of many kinds. James knows that it's not just one and done. We aren't given one trial in our life, but more often than not, as soon as we get through one, there's another one there to meet us. And James, as he writes this, is in the midst of a great trial as the church is being persecuted. He's writing to Christians that have been scattered all over And Christians reading this would have read it with ears saying, oh, yeah, I'm going through a hard time right now. But the church, the gospel spread because of the persecution. The gospel spread because Christians, despite being persecuted, were experiencing the joy of Christ and could not contain themselves. Which brings us to the second point. In our trials, we come face to face with Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 7 again says, Then Jesus appeared to James. Jesus meets James right where he's at in the midst of his unbelief and causes James to have a 180-degree change of perspective. What he doubted, he now believed. What he had called crazy, he now saw was a reality. Jesus didn't leave his brother in his unbelief. And similarly, Jesus doesn't leave us in our trials to fend them off ourselves, but he meets us right in the middle of them. A trial that I faced again and again in my 20s was what I call relationship turmoil. I also call it loneliness, but I was in and out of dating relationships and experiencing a lack of community and just the immobilizing, um, crippling stage of just loneliness. And I experienced so much pain during this time that to read a verse like James 1, 2 through 4 was very difficult because I could find no joy in the face of brokenness and loneliness. And how many of you know that uh, some trials don't just last five minutes, but some of them last more like five days, five weeks, five months, five years? Well, this trial that I experienced was more on like the 10-year route. And... I wasn't poised to, for that trial to take a lot of time. But God developed in me and worked in and through others while I was going through this trial. A mentor of mine, instead of setting me up with 
a boyfriend that would magically turn into a husband, said to me over and over again that I was to see Jesus as my husband. And I did not like that very much. (laughs) She said, Jesus is your heavenly husband. And I said to her, I want an earthly husband. Thank you very much. (laughs) But after a long time of her saying this to me over and over again, it started to sink in. I started to understand what she was saying, that I could have joy even in the midst of my pain, that I could see Jesus as my heavenly husband and my earthly husband because that was what was going to fulfill the longing in my heart. So after years of hearing this on repeat, it became not as hard to hear. And then when it became not as hard to hear, it started to become life-giving until it became my lifeline what I held to so tightly. A week ago, I was on a bike ride from Redmond to Spokane, and I've done this ride several times before, and during the ride, I had this flashback to 10 years ago when I was in the midst of this trial of relationship turmoil. And there's a moment in the ride where I can actually pinpoint the exact moment where I stared my trial of relationship turmoil in the face and experienced the miracle of joy despite it. In the middle of the state on Highway 2, there's a section of the blacktop that drops into the Moses Cooley. And I think there's a picture there. And it is one of the most beautiful places in the state of Washington. It is vast. It is huge. It's just this empty coulee And absolutely beautiful. And I remember I'm on my bike and I'm descending into the coulee and I'm taking it all in, all around me. There was no rider on the road except for me. There was no car on the road. I was completely and utterly alone. And this scene kind of matched what I was feeling. I felt like God was talking to my heart through the scenery around me. Beauty in the emptiness. And I had to stop my bike because I began to cry. Because I was so alone in my life. And so alone there. But yet in that moment, I felt so not alone. God had met me and filled me with his presence, and I had experienced joy in that moment, right there. That was the 180 for me in that that trial. Experiencing God's unexplainable joy. And I think the reason that I cry and get emotional is because I can still dip into that moment and just remember the stark contrast of going from pit of despair to experiencing God's joy. My life circumstances had not changed. I was still single, in and out of relationships, finding it hard to find community. But I learned that joy is not circumstantial. It's intentional. In my trial, I had come face to face with Jesus and experienced the miracle of joy. And now fast forward 10 years and I'm married. In marriage, the thing that was supposed to help out relationship turmoil has kind of only added to it as well as experiencing joy in the midst of marriage. Which brings us to our third point, 
Our trials might not be joyful, but they can be joy-filled. And that's one thing I, I want to make sure that you understand. Trials are hard, and God gets that trials are hard. He's not saying that trials are joyful, but God is saying and encouraging us that we can still experience him in the midst of them and still experience that unexplainable joy. And like Leslie said in her video testimony, trying to find helpful resources for her son was a hard time. And in her words, she said, I honestly thought I would never experience joy again. Have you ever felt that? Are you feeling that right now? God doesn't promise that our lives will be free of trials, but he does promise to be with us. And James writes, Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. And that word consider in the Greek is actually better translated feel. Feel joy. Consider is more intellectual, and feel is more emotional. So if you change the wording to feel joy whenever you experience trials of many kinds, it shifts the meaning from an intellectual response to an emotional one. Intellect would tell us that considering joy in a hard time doesn't make sense. But emotion tells us that feeling joy is a choice. Don't let trials rob you of joy especially when we have an immeasurable amount of joy that we have access to through Christ Jesus our Lord. So how about you? What trials are you facing right now? Perhaps it's the loss of a family member, the horror of a cancer diagnosis, a failing marriage, crippling fear, job loss, Maybe you're at a crossroads trying to make a decision and you don't know which way to go. Or maybe you're like James and you're wondering, is this really real? Or maybe you're in the midst of your own relationship turmoil. And you are asking, at what point am I going to feel joy? I know for me it was a journey and a process but if I really believe that God is the God that makes the impossible possible, then I have to believe that God is also the God that fills us with joy, even when our lives are void of joy. So God knows what you're up against. He will not leave you alone in your trial. And when we trust God to be our joy, we lack nothing. So God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are with us. God, fill us with your joy right now from top to bottom. We lay our trials at your feet and we look to you and we trust you. We thank you that you are God and we are not. We thank you that you surround us with community and you surround us with others to come alongside us on this journey called life. We give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.